Blog Talk Radio. Well, bless the Lord, everybody. Hopefully everybody is doing well and having a just a wonderful evening. If you're in the Chicagoland area, I know you're enjoying this warm weather. Hi, how you doing? Um, tonight is just going to be a fantastic night. Uh, last week when we left you, when we left off in Chapter 7, we spent a lot of time um, last week talking about God's promise and that this chapter, Chapter 7, was so important because it was a chapter that revealed um, the everlasting covenant that God made with David, saying that there would always be somebody uh, from his lineage that would sit on the throne. And we traced that lineage and spent some time showing that Jesus uh, comes through the line of David and what he uh, has done for us, and we celebrated it. And tonight we continue in chapter 8, because the thing I love about God is that he never makes a promise and doesn't fulfill it. And that's something that we have to hold on to because there are times when when it seems that, that God has forgotten about us. There are times when it seems like, you know, we, we know we heard this from God, but uh, it, it doesn't, doesn't look like he's coming through and we don't understand his purpose and we don't understand what he's doing in our lives. And, and, and we get frustrated. And not only do we get frustrated, we get even those of us who who are who have diligently waited upon the Lord, we get weary and and we sometimes want to do something different or or stir it up. We begin to question ourselves and say, "Lord, what is it that I'm doing wrong? You gave me a word." And if we think about David for just a few minutes. Uh, we talked about all that David went through. Those of you who were on the journey with me through First Samuel, we, we looked at and we saw all the things that David went through. And that this wasn't just a Johnny-come-lately, but this was a guy who was committed to God, who took God at his word. And not only did he take him at his word in terms of just believing but he acted upon that which he believed. He had to believe God to go up against Goliath. He had to believe God, the word that God had given him, that he was the anointed king of Israel to honor Saul, even when Saul sought to, to just do all kinds of things against him. He had to believe God all of those months sitting out in the wilderness, the caves of Abdullah, in the, in, in, in the Philistine territory, he had to trust God. And, the, and it culminated with David finally getting what God promised him. But, you know, one of the things I've learned about God is that when God promises you something and we think it's going to be one thing, that he'll give you even more. The word reminds us that he will do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. And so tonight, as we go into chapter 8, I want to show you the connection between chapter 7 and chapter 8 and then discuss with you uh, all of the things that God is doing. So with that, let's have a word of prayer and let's get ready to dive in. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to say thank you. God, how we bless you and how we praise you for your word. For your word sustains us even during the times when, when we're being attacked on every side. And so, God, we thank you for your word that reminds us to move forward with the shield of faith, that shield that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy. We bless your name, God, that you are not a man that you should lie, nor the son of man that you should repent, that there is nothing too hard for you. And so we thank you, O oh God, that everything that you've promised us, that everything that we're going through, that everything that we're going to go through, that your requirement of us 
is that we trust you and walk with you. Because your word reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please you. And so by faith, even tonight, we go into your word, trusting that you, by your Holy Spirit, will lead us and guide us into all truth. Father, we go into your word by faith, knowing that you will speak to our spirit man tonight, and that you will strengthen us even as you reveal truth to us. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just quickly, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, tonight's a good night to do it. Tonight is one of those times where, you know, I know that if you've heard the gospel message that Jesus died for your sins and that all you need to do is you need to believe and have faith in him and trust that he died and your sins are paid for and that you can be a child of God even tonight. By simply confessing him. And what does the confess me? To say the same as. By simply saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I ask him to be my Savior. If you do that and you believe that, you are a child of the King. For those of you who have never done it, and, and even now as you hear me tonight, you say, well, I'm not sure. i got a message for you. Your sins are forgiven whether you believe it or not. And if you don't take the gift, shame on you because it's there for you. But you have to take it. You have to believe God. And so if you have prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to find a Christian, a pastor, a church, uh, and go in and say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I've asked him to be my Savior. Now what? And you know what they're going to do? They're going to take you to the side, and they're going to teach you the way of salvation. They're going to teach you what comes next. And they're going to show you how to, to, as they say, be a part of this great family of God. So if you've done that, God bless you, and welcome to the kingdom. If not, don't neglect God's salvation. Don't neglect that. And I'm praying that, that you right now, that God would open up a way for you to hear his voice, that he would continue to work with your heart, that one day when Jesus returns, you and I together can be caught up in the air, and so shall we be with him forevermore. Okay, so now, let's turn right away to Second Samuel chapter 8, and we are going to begin on, on, on this chapter, and I'm calling this a victory chapter, and you'll see why in a minute. It says, I'm going to start reading that verse 1. It says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Methag Ammon from the control of the Philistines. I want to stop right there. So why do we leave this great time of worship, and why does the narrator take us right away into the victory over the Philistines? Well, the key tonight that you need to understand is that God is beginning to fulfill his word, his promise that he gave to David. God is beginning to fulfill the word that he gave to David, and I want you to, to, to take a look real quick at the promise. Go back to, to um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 so we can just make sure that you know what the promise was. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And this is, this is God speaking to, to uh, Nathan. He says, now then, I'm at verse 8, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. 
Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So you see, now, there's a promise here to Israel. And David goes about, by faith, fulfilling, by faith, allowing God to use him to fulfill the promise that he made. And what's the promise? I'm going to give them a land. They're not going to be harassed by their enemies anymore. They're going to live in peace. That's the gist of the promise to Israel. Now, we spent a lot of time last week uh, going through the promise to David, but this is the promise to Israel. Now, the first people that David goes out against is the Philistines. And if you look at, um, if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1, it's going to give us a little, just a little bit more. So go over to 1 Chronicles real quick. Give us a, just a little bit more because there's a name here that we don't understand uh, it says Methaic Amah from the control of the Philistines. Now watch what we get when we go to First Chronicles chapter 18. Turn over there with me. Here's what it says. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. So now David goes in. And I just remember, remember, just a few chapters before, the Philistines were running the Israelites. Now they come in, and Gath is considered the capital of the five Philistine cities. And he literally goes in and takes their capital city from them, and he begins to control the area surrounding the capital city that had been invaded by the Philistines and, and, and taken from Judah and Benjamin. So literally what David does is say, uh-uh, y'all gone. But look at the language that he uses over in, in, in verse um, 2 Samuel as well as uh, 1 Chronicles. It says, he defeated the Philistines. Now, if you notice, we've seen Israel defeat the Philistines before. But what else does he do? He subdued them, and he took control from them. So not only does he take them down, beat them back, but he brings them to a point of submission. Now, those of you who do a little wrestling and all that kind of stuff, you know that when you bring a person to a point of submission, what you do is you make them give up. They'll, stay, they'll lay on the mat, and if you've got a referee, the referee comes in and says, one, two, three, he got you. You out. Or if there's no referee, he's hollering, uncle, uncle, uncle. Well, literally what David does is he defeats them. He makes them cry, uncle. And then he takes control of them. Now, remember that. It's not just he won the battle. No. It's not just he won the war. No. Because when you, if you just win the war and let them go, 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 go away, they'll take their time and get strong on you again. And they'll come back. But he says, y'all are coming back this way. And as a matter of fact, you don't see the Philistines come back for a long, long time. You don't see them come back for a long time because David puts them in submission and he takes control of them. Secondly, verse 2, David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Now, some people are not going to like this. Some people are not going to like what David does. But you have to remember, and, and, and you have to remember that warfare in those times was a lot different than well, 
Really, it's not because if we think about what's going on in Aleppo and what the Russians and the Syrians are doing over there, I mean, they're literally killing, they're wiping out whole villages, and and they're being very indiscriminate about it. If you're there, if you're in that village, they drop a bomb on you, they kill off just about everybody, and they come back and drop another bomb to kill the rest of them. And what David does, and I'll show show you why he does what he does later on, but what David does is he literally, he takes lengths of cord, or maybe it was wood, or maybe it was an iron rod, but he has them lay down on the ground, and every two lengths, everybody that falls within two lengths of whatever that stick was, he kills them. And then that third length, they're allowed to live. So literally, he is exterminating the population, but he's not quite wiping them out. It's not like he did, they did with the Amalekites, where they were told to utterly destroy men, women, children, everybody. Don't leave nothing. Kill them all. No. He just, two-thirds of their people were wiped out by David. Doing this battle. And you're going to get a better understanding of it as we go, go along. And it's going to be kind of confusing why he is doing this to the Moabites when you realize who the Moabites are. Let's go further. They became subject to him, just like the Philistines, and they bring him tribute. So he enslaves them and he lays a tax on them. So every year, they, are, they, they have to bring to David a payment. And David's not their king, but David, they become a vassal to him. They are in servitude. You want to keep living? You want to you know, keep moving along? Pay up. That's what he does to them. Moreover, I'm on verse 3. Moreover, David fought Hadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zorba, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. I'm going to go a little further because this, this, little, this whole passage, it, we're, I'm going to have to explain some things. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zorba, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Surface teaching first, and then I'll get a little deeper. So literally what David is doing is he goes north into – now this guy – um, Rahab, he is basically the king of Syria. Now, I want you to see, uh, in terms of geography, what's going on. If you put Jerusalem in the center, to the west of Jerusalem is the Philistine territory. To the east of Jerusalem is Moab, the Moabite territory. And then north of Jerusalem is Syrian territory. So literally, David is subduing the enemy, and he is causing him to have rest. All of the tribes of of Israel. Remember back in 1 Samuel when we looked at the map, and we saw all of the opposition to the individual tribes? And now here is Israel united under David. And all of, remember, when you go back to Judges, you see the Moabites, the Ammonites, they attacked, and a judge has to come along and deliver them. You see all of that happening around them. Because, and remember I taught that the, these attacks by the Moabites were not against all of Israel. They were against maybe one or two tribes, and one or two tribes got overwhelmed. But when Israel comes together under David, it's all Israel that marches out against the enemy, and, they, and they, he, he is able to subdue the enemy. Hint, hint, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'll be in the midst of them. 
So all of the division that we talked about that was, uh, that was in place in Judges, that was in place in 1 Samuel, all of a sudden under the anointed king of God, the people of God are coming together, and God is sending them out to attack the enemy. And they, by faith, they go out and attack, and they are achieving overwhelming success. Now, you, hear, you see this thing where he says uh, in verse 4, in verse 4, uh, David captured a thousand of the chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. What that hamstrung means, and, and some some people will try to say that it means that he turned those stallions into geldings. But the language here basically says that David cuts a tendon in the horse's leg, and so they're not able to push off with power and advance and charge against the Israelites. Now, why does he destroy all of those horses? Well, a couple reasons. One, he destroys those horses because he doesn't want those, the enemy to ever be able to use them again. Secondly, as a king, he was not allowed to have a whole bunch of horses. And thirdly, he had no need for them. He literally didn't have any need for them because the way Israel is situated, uh, warfare on horses and chariots made no sense. Made no sense at all. They're in hilly areas. And so what are you going to do with a bunch of chariots? And then especially if you're going out in the springtime to fight, during the spring when God would give the initial rains, that's just a bunch of mud that you're messing around in. So a muddy chariot and horses on hills, no sense. David realizes I got no use for them. I'm not supposed to have them anyway. They're not going to do me any good. And on top of all this, I got to feed them. No. So he hamstrings them. And so the horses are no good for anybody anymore. The, now, this looks pretty sketchy. Uh, verse 3 all the way through verse um, 6, that, that, that description of those battles. I could go into it with a lot more depth, and I am, two, three weeks from now, because this is another thing about the narrator. He's given us summaries of things, and he's not giving it in chronological order. In chapter 10, we will see the details of the battle, because what you're going to learn in chapter 10 is along with the Moabites, there's the Ammonites that are in there. And the Ammonites are going to hook up with Syria. And so you've got a lot of play in there that, that really we, we, that detail that we are going to get that I'm not going to go in tonight, but I'm going to let you know it's going to happen. You're going to get more detail about this. I'm not doing it tonight, though. Um, Let's go to verse 7. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Teba and Betrothel, towns that belonged to Hadezer. King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zorbah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And this is God working through David, 
who moves by faith in the promise that God gave him to bring peace throughout the land. Now, one of the things that, that I want you to see tonight is David's reaction in victory versus Saul's reaction in victory. When we go back in and remember in 1 Samuel, when Saul got a major victory, what did Saul do? Saul went out to the plains and built a monument to himself. David is blessed with a bunch of victories, and what does David do? Remember what the word says concerning the behavior of a king. Not many horses, not much silver and gold. Remember that? So what does David do with all that God gives him in victory? He takes it and he gives it back to God. He takes all of this. He doesn't try to make himself rich or grand or anything like that. It's a continuation of what we saw in chapter 7. David's living in a house and his heart is so for God. He says, God, I'm living in, a, in this nice house of cedar and there you are in the tent. And so David takes all of the things that, that God allows him to gather in victory and he gives them to God. So you're saying right now, okay, that's great. David did a great job. But what does this mean to me? What does this victory mean to me? Well, I'm going to show you something. First of all, let's go back to the first verse again. And I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to answer the question after asking, who are the Philistines? Aren't the Philistines a people that was wanted the land that God had given to Israel? Weren't they the ones that wanted to vie with Israel for that fertile land that God had given to them on promise. Who are the Moabites? Aren't the Moabites the descendants of Lot? You, you don't remember that, do you? Remember, after Lot leads his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're in a cave. And during the time that they're in that cave, his daughters come upon him, and they say, look, our daddy ain't got no, no boys. and he, He's got nothing. He, we, we've got nothing here. Uh, let me see where that's at. Hold on. Let me, think, let me see if I can find it in my notes. Um, it's in Genesis. Ooh, let, me, let me see if I can grab it real quick. It's in Genesis. I should have had it in my notes somewhere. Maybe I do have them here. Let me just look for a second before I start flipping pages. And as usual, I put something in my head and didn't didn't quite put it in my notes. Oh, that's okay. I have to. Uh, you have to. I don't like. I don't like you just telling you something and then not giving you the. Um, the passage of scripture that goes along with it. So I'm I'm on time, so I can do this. I can do this. Let me go back just a little bit more. It's Genesis nine. Okay. Oh no 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 no. Here it is. Here it is. Fourteen or fifteen. Oh, well, I'm going to, oh, no, here it is, here it is, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, here it is, it's Genesis chapter 19, uh, around that 30th voice, here, here, Genesis 19, 30, that's where it's at, it says, 
Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the younger daughter said, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when he lay, she lay down or when she got up. He was drunk. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you can go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night. Also, and the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when he, she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him ben -Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. So what you see there is these are descendants of Lot. Abraham is their great uncle, and that would make them, what do you, let me see, that would make Amnon, the Ammonites, the Moor, and the Moabites cousins, and it would also make him cousins with Israel. So these are cousins. Now, I don't want to take the time to do it, but as you go through the word, what you'll find out is when God releases the children of Israel from Egypt and they're marching to the promised land, you'll find that God tells them, I'm not giving you the land of Moab because I gave that to Lot's kids, and I'm not giving you the land of the, the Ammonites because I gave that to Lot's children. So he takes and he tells them to walk around those territories and to not even enter in. But where Moab gets in trouble is Moab, rather than, this is family now, rather than them being a blessing to their cousins. Remember Balaam and Balak? Who, who hired them? Who hired them? It was the king of Moab. Turn over with me to, uh, let's see, that should be Numbers. That should be uh, Numbers chapter, uh, come on, notes, where are my notes here? I didn't copy my notes good. That's okay. Look, go over the numbers. Let's let's grab it real quick. Uh, there it is. Numbers chapter 22. Can't read all of this. This is a whole lot. It's, I'll give you the gist of it. Then the Israelites, Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. And you're going to see why I'm going through all of this in a minute. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Then Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, king of Baor, who was at Pathor near the river in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. 
For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So why did I go through all of that? I went through that to identify, number one, that the Philistines were after their inheritance. And now you see the Moabites who have attempted to curse the people of God. The Moabites and the Ammonites, when you read this story completely, you'll see that they had some stuff to do with this too. These cousins are hooking up against another cousin, trying to curse the people of God. And then you had some others in there. Um, you, had, you, had, you had some others toward the end of the chapter, and each of them have an assignment. Now, why are you going through that? Because I, tonight what this study should show you is that there are enemies that you have out there that are assigned to you. And I'm going to take it a little bit further. And the one who assigned the enemy to you is the Lord. Ooh, some head popping going on now. Okay. And there's a reason why he assigned an enemy to you. Let me tell you what the reasons are. Number one, to teach you how to pray. The second reason, to test your faith. Now, you're sitting up here and you're saying to me, because God gave you a promise. God sent you on a mission, and you are wondering, Lord, when are you going to do something about this one? When is this relief coming right here? And you don't realize that this is God allowing you to be tested. And he doesn't test you knowing that you're going to fail. But he will expose your need. Now, you just said a whole lot. And now, Pastor, we used to you backing your stuff up with the word. Okay, let's go to the word then. Judges chapter 3. Judges three, we got time. I'm gonna take you. We're gonna we're gonna go someplace real fast now. We've been kind of loafing along, but now we're getting ready to step up the pace a little bit. Judges chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach the warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. So let me put a finger right there. When you are under attack and you don't know how to fight, you're going to learn how to fight. Now, sometimes early on in our walk with God, all we got is an old Lord and a help me Jesus. But as you continue to walk in God, you learn how to pray. You learn how to go before God and begin to ask God certain things. You learn how to go into the heavenlies and do warfare. Because what does Paul tell us in Ephesians? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual weakness, and high faith places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Paul teaches us that as Christians, we're not a bunch of namby-pamby people, and to get the things that God has given us, we have to fight the fight of faith. And what is the fight of faith? The fight of faith is we have to set doubt and all of the demons of doubt to flight. We have to go to war against the schemes and wiles of the devil. That's why you have to get up every morning putting your clothes on. You have to come, as they say, you have to get strapped every day because every time you get out the bed, you're going to fight. And every time that you lay in the bed, you say, I'm fighting today. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to stay in the bed. Well, you're just going to be in the bed fighting or taking a whooping, one or the other. But it's not going to be one of the things where the devil just going to give you your stuff and he's just going to let you march happy on your way because you got Jesus. No. 
He is going to try to oppress you. He's going to try to defeat you. He's going to try to destroy your testimony. He's going to try to scare you so that you never open up your mouth. He is going to try to take your inheritance from you. He's going to try to turn your blessings into cursings because that's his job. And your job is to learn how to fight. What else does it say? The five, he did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. They were left there to test the faith of Israel. The enemy is in your life assigned by God, left there by God, to see if you are going to walk the way you say you're going to walk. If you are going to believe God and act on his word, or if you're just talking loud and saying nothing. Mm -hmm. God did that, and he's testing you. And his expectations are that you will succeed. And how are you going to succeed? Well, let me tell you a little story. There was a time in my life when I wouldn't fight. I wouldn't, I ain't want nothing to do with nobody's fighting. But I had an older brother named James. And James made me fight. He made me fight one of the biggest bullies in the nation. Well, the guy wasn't that big. He was a little bit bigger than me, and he was a little bit older than me. But, you know, to me, he was a guy that I couldn't defeat, and I was, you know, I'd give in to him. And my brother told me, oh, no, you got to learn how to fight. And day in and day out, he would take me in the bedroom, and he would just punch my lights out. And, you know, I think sometimes he wasn't teaching me. He was just practicing his stuff on me until I learned something. And he teaching me how to jab and how to hook, how to get in tight. But more than anything else, he taught me that if I got hit, I wasn't going to die. And if I wanted him to stop hitting, I needed to fight back. And that's what the Lord is teaching us now, that if we want to stop getting hit, that if we want to stop getting beat on, that if we want to stop Satan from taking over our homes, taking over our schools, taking over our neighborhoods and communities and and our cities and our nation, you better fight. If you are going to advance the kingdom of God, if you are going to go out and, and, and share the gospel, you've got to go by faith, and you've got to be ready to take a lick. But, and it doesn't say that we have to be physically fighting. No. Remember the passage? We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. But instead, we've got to become prayer warriors and go into the heavenlies. Now, look, we, had an, we got an example of that. Go to Luke chapter, what did my notes tell me? Where are we going now? We're going to Luke chapter 4. And, I'm, and i I gotta, and I got to say this. i got to say this again and again, you know, because I know that we have moved away from that chapter a little bit. But I'm, you, I, that chapter is a springboard. We have a tendency to look at the Old Testament as if it's just a historical document. But instead, it is a prophetic document that propels us forward into our victory. It's an example of how David obeyed God. David, the anointed of God, obeyed God by faith and went out and subdued the enemy. Look at this. Luke chapter 4. I'm talking and not turning enough. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, 
and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Hmm. What has happened to Jesus? Remember, go back? At the earlier part, what does Jesus say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What did we see earlier than that? The baptism of Jesus. Jesus is the anointed king. He is, the, he is the one who is the Messiah, the anointed one that they have been waiting for. And Jesus begins to clear the land of demonic oppression. Just as the Philistines and the Amorites and the Moabites had been oppressing the, the children of Israel, Back in David's time, and God anoints David to give the people rest, here steps Jesus and identifies himself as the Messiah and begins immediately to kick the devil out of the land. Look at, look, look, look at, look at, uh, go to 38. Jesus left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus, listen to this, all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he, would, he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Jesus is coming in and he is wiping out, literally wiping out sickness and canceling death. He's delivering the people and ushering them into a period of peace. Now, in the Greek, that word is irene, but irene was translated from the, the Hebrew, and it meant shalom. And shalom basically characterizes all the goodness of God. So the blessings that God has for his people, the blessings of health, the blessings of life that God has for his people, Jesus comes along and he is announcing them, and he is delivering the people of God. But now... Look, go over to Colossians 2.12. Show you because Paul in his letter to the Colossians, he sums it all up. These pages are so thin. Colossians chapter 2, verse... Right? No, excuse me. Two fifteen. Do something look wrong. Here, let me start at thirteen. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now watch this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus comes, and he he what he does is hang on, this is messing with me over here. Um, 
what he does when he comes is he defeats Satan completely. And if you read it in the King James Version, it says he made a show of him openly. And the picture that he's drawing here is that he beat him and he drug him back. And in Rome during that time, what they would do is if you were captured, if you weren't killed in battle, they would enslave you and then just march you down the street and show that he made an open show of what he had done at Calvary. As a matter of fact, the, the writer says he took captivity captive. So he came and he destroyed principalities. He destroyed powers. He showed that he was bringing the peace of God to the people of God. And those who have faith have the peace of God. But you've got to fight because the devil trying to take that from you. He's trying to take it from you. Now, not only does he do that, but he anoints us. Look at Luke chapter 10 real quick because I'm running out of time. Oh, wait a minute. No, I just want to show you all one thing. This is the thing I love. Go over to Revelations real quick because you know that Jesus defeated him, but he's still hanging around bothering us, right? Let me flip to the end of the book real quick. Go into Revelations chapter 3. No, it's actually chapter 20, I believe it is. Transpose some numbers. Revelations chapter 20. This is something we all got to look forward to because God has given us the victory. Revelations chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now go to, go to the 10th verse. They're going to let him out for a few minutes. And the devil who deceives them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, there's going to come a period of time when, when God is going to throw the devil and all his boys into the pit of hell for eternal torment. So I like to say, in the end, we win. The saints of God are in heaven. The devil is burning in hell. And we are happy, happy, happy. But until that time comes, we got to fight. So now, go one more place with me, and I believe it's Luke chapter 10. I want to show you something because, you know, not only does God allow, not only does God allow us to participate through Jesus, okay, through Jesus, but he anoints his disciples. And if you believe in Jesus, and if you are a Christian and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. And in Luke chapter 10, this is what he says. After this, I'm Luke 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. 
If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is set before you. Watch this. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for you. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority. Hear me now. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God gives us an assignment and he gives us authority. And he says, I give you power over serpents. I give you power over Satan. I give you power over that which would harm anybody else except my disciples. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have the power and the authority to inherit, to, to push out, to launch out, and go into the places that God has anointed you to go? Do you believe that you have the power to go into heavenly places and do battle with Satan to save yourself, to save your faith, to move you from a position of doubt into a position of belief? Is that, isn't that what this is saying? Isn't that what David did? Isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what Jesus tells us to do? That's what he tells us. Now, there, at the end of that chapter, at the end of that chapter, and I pray, I pray that you begin to learn how to walk in victory and not in defeat because God has given you an inheritance. God has said to you, he said, you know what? I love you so much that I'm going to give you eternal life. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. God has given you heaven, and he has seated you in heavenly places. You believe that? Why are you just talking? Do you have the victory? Then walk like it. Be a warrior. Learn how to pray, because that's what that enemy is there for. And Jesus shows us that, hey, I got this. I got this. And I've given it to you. And he tells us even now, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And since he overcame, we become overcomers. I had a big brother, James. You got a big brother, Jesus, who will lead you into the fight and teach you how to fight. Let's pray. Eternal God, our Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you that you've given us the victory and that all we have to do is trust you and go out and fight and war because you've given us the authority to win. And the devil, he, he, he don't have us. We got him. He's been tricking us, making us think that we're going to lose. But he not only has he lost at Calvary, but, oh, God, one day you're going to drag him 
You're going to drag him out and throw him in that pit? Even while we're rejoicing around your throne. We bless you and we praise you for victory. Now strengthen us in our walk with you. Strengthen us, O oh God. Light a fire under us when, when it seems like we, we're kind of, as they say, getting a little lazy. Remind us of this word when we get into fear, because you keep telling us to fear not. Teach us even more how to trust. We thank you, God, for the enemies that in our lives who are forcing us to pray, who are teaching us, who, who we experiment known, even as we fight the good fight of faith. Now, God, we want to advance your kingdom. We want to advance the gospel. Give us an opportunity. Put somebody in our way. And then, God, don't depend on us, but send your Holy Spirit to minister to, to them through us. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's it for tonight. I'm, I'll finish off the tail end of uh, Chapter 8 next week, and we'll go right into Chapter 9. Uh, there's only a little bit of explaining that we need to do on that tail end. And we'll go right into Second Samuel chapter nine. I thank you for being with us tonight on the Word and on Wednesday. God bless you and God keep you. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm supposed to run out of time. I did run out of time.